0: Well, we're way past the big speech time. I want to thank you for the last few months. It's been very special for me. Anybody have anything they want to say?
1: Yeah, let's win this one for all the small schools that never had a chance to get here. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
0: And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 71 this time around, which is Erica's choice. Let's see what she has in store for us.
1: Well, as you know, Cole, I am a gigantic basketball fan.
0: (laughs) Did I know that?
1: I think you did. So it was obvious, it was inevitable that I choose something really special for March Madness.
0: I look across the table at you, into your eyes, and you clearly have March Madness.
1: I do. But full disclosure, I am not a basketball fan.
0: How do you feel about Zone versus Man to Man?
1: I don't know know. what any of those words are, but... I am a fan of Hoosiers from 1986, directed by David Ansbaugh with Gene Hackman, Barbara Hershey, Dennis Hopper, and Sheb Woolley. It's about a small town Indiana high school basketball team and the coach who comes to try to take them all the way to the state championship. Now I mentioned that I don't know what zone or man-to-man defense is. One more full disclosure for you. When I was about 10 years old, I was so excited by basketball that I asked my parents if I could join a little local league because I enjoy shooting hoops. That's what it really came down to. And so it came to the first game and the ref was saying something to me about, you can't stand over here for whatever reason. I still couldn't tell you what it is. And I realized I don't know the rules.
0: (laughs) You also have that deep anti-authoritarian streak that I don't think lends itself to being coached effectively or refereed effectively for that matter, I guess.
1: At that point, I would have loved someone to pull me aside and say, that (laughs) is what that means. And here's why you can't do that. And then have practices where I guess maybe they had to start back from the beginning and say, here's where you stand to do this. And here's how you shoot a free throw and blah, blah, blah. So I took my love of playing horse, for example, and tried to put it into a team aspect, and that did not work.
0: Kids basketball games are some of the funniest sporting events that you will ever go to. If you get the chance, it's way better than Pee Wee baseball because there's constant action and fumbling and picking up the ball and running with it.
1: I'm sure people on the sidelines were laughing uproariously at me.
0: So being a non-sports person, not an anti-sports person necessarily, but being a non-sports person, what is the allure of a film like Hoosiers, or sports films in general for that matter?
1: I'm actually going to clarify that a little bit because, in some ways, I am anti-sports. Certain aspects, especially of professional sports, make me actively furious. At the very least, I'm completely indifferent And that was a question that I wrote in my own notes as well. If you're not into sports, what about a sports film can endure? And for me, the answer comes full circle. Why we do this podcast? Because movies can make me care about something I don't care about. And I'm going to use a couple of examples here. When I was a kid, I was convinced that I wanted to be a lawyer And it took me quite a while, well into my teens, to realize this was because I was obsessed with Perry Mason.
0: A basketball-playing lawyer? Were you going to have a double major for (laughs) that? that,
1: Is that what White Shadow's about?
0: (laughs) No, but close enough.
1: It was all about the acting and the story that excited me. It made me look at something I had no familiarity with in a compelling light. And then I fell for that same concept again with Northern Exposure, which I've mentioned on the show before, and that led me to move to Alaska. So I don't live or die by basketball or by any sport. I sometimes root for underdogs, but I definitely, at the end of the day, identify with those who refuse to be intimidated by things that initially seem bigger than they are. So then you show me something that is all heart, like Hoosiers, and I am all in. I can be led by music, stirring Americana. I can be led by a dare-to-be-great situation. I can cheer for excellence, sheer earned excellence. And when it comes to the moment in the scene that we did, when that young player talks about winning it for those small schools, I feel like I know what he means. And so that's why I chose Hoosiers. I think it's above all a great film, not just a great sports film.
0: Well, it's a little bit different for me. The same and different, I guess, in a manner of speaking. It's the same problem that I run into when I say I like movies. When I say I like sports, because I really do like sports, but I like them in a very specific way. The average person and I say either one of those things to, we are not speaking the same language a lot of the time. I say I love movies. They say, oh, great. What did you think of the Oscars? And... I already know that this is not someone who is having the same conversation. And knowing what I know, when I say I like sports, it's like showing a dog a card trick, essentially, when I'm trying to have that conversation. We mentioned this during the Dawson City episode, being in our cinephile bubble, we're used to talking to people for whom, for instance, with the film stuff, it's a perfectly natural thing to say, oh, we're never going to see a U.S. release of that because Studio Canal owns the rights and everybody knows exactly what that means. But the average person does not care and does not know. They think they know what I mean when I say each of those things, and frequently I just let them go on believing that because it's just too hard to explain and they typically don't care anyway. But I'm going to explain it here for the record at least once. I like sports a lot, but I don't mean that in a yeah, bro, let's watch football all day Sunday kind of way, which may be one of the things that you find frustrating and irritating when you said you have those things. What I like is human achievement and excellence, like you mentioned. I like competition. I like seeing the evidence of dedication and hard work. For instance, I really love boxing. In my estimation, boxing is one of the most pure athletic competitions that there is. Strength, endurance, skill, strategy, offense, defense, imposing your pure will on someone, the sum total of one person's athletic prowess pitted directly against another in unyielding competition. And the first couple of years of Mike Tyson's professional career are a perfect example of what I'm talking about when I say that. I had never seen such a pure fighter, in the sense that that was not what he did, it was simply what he was. Later in his career, it obviously became shameful and criminal, both in the cases of the people he hurt and the people that hurt him, but those first couple of years have some golden examples of what I love about sports in them. I take similar joy in watching Usain Bolt run. That is like watching human evolution happen right before your very eyes. It's beautiful. It is perfection. Same thing watching David Eckstein make a catch he's not supposed to make. Same thing watching Clyde Frazier pass up his own shot to put the ball right where it needs to be without even looking because that floor is his and he knows everything that is happening on that floor at all times. It really is amazing to see someone who is the best in the world at what they do. It's inspiring, and there is a magic in it. And this goes for any field of endeavor, from filmmakers to teachers to ditch diggers. I appreciate it all. Some of it's just televised more than others. But all of these guys I mentioned, and countless others, have one or more of those elements that elevate sport to art for me. Prodigious natural ability, an unflagging work ethic, a willingness to go farther than you to get the job done, It's their reason for being, and the complete union of those things is what I like about sports. No high fives or painting of the face required.
1: And to come back to the film itself, I think a big piece of why I included this and why this lives in my memory is that I saw it at a time when I didn't know how a lot of those stories would turn out on film.
0: You mean you weren't familiar enough with the formula yet? You weren't well-versed in sports movie tropes, or movie tropes in general, I guess? What age are we talking about here?
1: I was about 10 or 11 when this came out, and we saw it in the theaters.
0: So maybe it's a case of the first one of this type of thing you see is the one that sticks with you for the longest time.
1: I think so, and it has the most power to stir. So how about we get to the film? Good idea. It's early dawn in Indiana. It feels like autumn. We're driving through the countryside, and it seems like everyone has a hoop.
0: Right off the bat, we know that we are not going to get a masterwork of subtlety, I think, because in this opening title sequence, as he is driving to his first day to be the coach of the Hickory Huskers, one of the very first images we see is Hackman literally standing at a crossroads. It might as well be a Grant Wood painting, as unsubtle as it is as regional as it is. In fact, the whole film is like that. It's not big on irony or nuance, and that makes it a little tough sometimes for me to fully embrace something that doesn't have a great deal of complexity outside of silly genre exercises. I think the thing that saves it for me here is that there are plentiful moments of grace, so that helps. But definitely not much subtlety in the overall story, which is what makes it easy and great for 10-year-old you to get excited about. That's not why we come to movies like this for a great deal of complexity and subtlety and shades. So it's fine. Plus, Hackman always does have that edge. He's always going to be complex, even if the film isn't. And that thing you mentioned of hoops being everywhere, that is a very real thing. And that's coming from an Okie. Oklahoma versus Indiana. In Oklahoma, it's football, at least for most of Oklahoma. But the way this speaks to me... We were a small school when I turned the age that you start playing for school teams. We couldn't have fielded field of a football team if we wanted to, but we didn't want to. We were basketball obsessed. We spent every recess playing it. We played it at home. And in our part of Oklahoma, hoops were everywhere, makeshift and otherwise. And when I was smaller, and it was too wet to play outside, I figured out a way to push my closet door back against the wall of my bedroom, and that became the goal, and I would throw my Nerf basketball over the top of my closet door and pretend like I was Dr. J. Until I had run into that door so many times they had to replace the door. One entire wall of my bedroom was covered with pictures of college players that I had cut out of years' worth of Sports Illustrateds. Just college players, though. That purity thing I mentioned at the beginning... I have always felt that way about it. And that's why I always preferred college or amateur sports to professional sports. And Hoosiers is the epitome of that.
1: It definitely might not be subtle, which I think I overlooked easily when I was much younger. What I do appreciate and come back to is that it feels quiet, in essence. There, to me at least, is a lack of bombast, which I really appreciate. And as you mentioned, it's not subtle, right away. Once Hackman arrives at the school, he meets Barbara Hershey's teacher character, Myra, right away. She's openly hostile. She's in a position of authority over him with the blocking of the two characters. He's rude right back to her.
0: He shifts that balance a little bit, I think, though, right there in terms of their stature and placement because he's rude back to her in a folksy and somewhat charming way whereas she is nothing but prim and severe. So you do have two somewhat unsympathetic characters right away, jousting for a position of who is going to be the most least likable.
1: And then we come to my absolute favorite. and that is Sheb Woolley. He's playing Cletus, the high school principal. He's the person who tracked Norman Dale, Gene Hackman's character down. They have a shared history together. And I think we're predisposed to like him right away. I think, again, talking about positioning, he's on the floor when we first meet him. He's sitting in front of the radiator, and he says that he's floating. Sheb Woolley reminds me of every beloved family member I have. I think he has a gentle face. He has a beautiful speaking voice as well. And to me, he's the epitome of grace here throughout, so I want to talk about Sheb Woolley for just another few seconds, if you don't mind. Well, number one, he's an Oki, so that's a point in his favor in my book. He's got an incredibly interesting history that I had no idea about.
0: Did you not listen to a lot of Dr. Demento when you were little?
1: I did not. I still have never heard a Dr. Demento episode.
0: Well, I know what we're doing after the show.
1: Okay. Among many other notable accomplishments, he has a very varied acting history. He was a songwriter-performer for many, many, many years. I think one of the highlights being that he wrote the song The Purple People Eater.
0: And another completely coincidental, unintentional sports connection there. The defensive line of the Minnesota Vikings in the late 60s, early 70s actually co-opted that and used the phrase purple people eaters as their nickname as that's what color their jerseys were.
1: He is also credited as the most likely potential creator of the Wilhelm Scream.
0: Now that I did not know.
1: So I think it's safe to say we'll be hearing Sheb (laughs) Woolley for the rest of our lives. Did you have as strong an immediate connection to him as I apparently did?
0: There is an innate knowledge of one another that all Okies share. There is the life force that comes from the red earth of Oklahoma that allows us to be able to single each other out in a crowd know when each other are in trouble from long distances away. If we're ever in distress, like the Freemasons, we can just ask, are there any good Okies in the room and they are obliged to come to your assistance? Yeah, he seems like a fantastic, lovable, everyone's grandfather the kind of guy who would give people who are near and dear to him their last second chance.
1: Which is definitely what he's doing for Norman, and he refers a little bit to that mysterious past. Norman's been in the service for quite a while at this point, and his history with basketball we'll learn more about as we go. So for now, he's ready to get started, and they head out to the gym. And there's one boy in there playing on his own, and we learn that this is Jimmy.
0: One of the things that might not register with you, having not done much of it, but I can tell you the feeling that it gives me to see this scene, having an empty gym all to yourself is one of the greatest feelings in the world. I would assume the way you feel when you have an entire movie theater to yourself.
1: I do understand what you mean. I look at it as that only child dream and curse. (laughs) I'm always prepared to do anything on my own, including play against myself.
0: So when you said earlier you were playing horse, it was Erica versus Erica, H to H-O?
1: Sometimes, but no, I did grow up in a really neat neighborhood with lots of kids my age, and one person did have a hoop, so we were always down there. We learn that Jimmy is an incredibly gifted player, but he is not on the team due to some family circumstances. He was really close to the former coach who has since died. Now, Norman, in true coach fashion, I think, is all about, no player is irreplaceable. And they set out the stakes in a very simple way, which is that it's got to work out this time, or that's it for good.
0: Well, since you bring it up, there are a couple of slightly subversive things that this film does within its larger, more conservative framework that I especially like. First and foremost, the lead character is unlikable, a risky move in a lovable underdog story, with some dark baggage. The hero that we meet, Jimmy Chitwood, defines the film mostly by his absence a great deal of the time, and the film actively works to undercut that no one is irreplaceable dictum by making Jimmy irreplaceable.
1: It's true, and at some point, not right now if you don't mind, I do want to talk about some mixed messages that we get.
0: But all of this is done in service of redemption, order, discipline, and a happy ending, so I get to have my cake and eat it too, basically.
1: I do really appreciate, and even with the character of Jimmy, that our main leads, and I'll mention each of these as we get there, have this, again, mysterious sense of some sort of deep well of anger or sadness or frustration. And essentially, we're always our own worst enemy.
0: Did coaches teach in your high school? Did you have coaches' classes?
1: Definitely. I always assumed it was a requirement.
0: Were they the easiest classes you had?
1: It generally was civics, psychology. Driver's ed. But I still really remember all of them as being very likable people. Oh, health.
0: Yeah, that's true. I remember them as being very likable, very sleepy people. Because the coach's classes that I took, the main thing you didn't do was wake him up after he fell asleep reading the newspaper and easy A.
1: I also appreciate that there is no main, large villain in this film. In place of that, we do have a little bit of a negative force here, and that's the local quote unquote boys. These are the dads, the older male figures in positions of authority who know exactly how the team should be run so that we can get a win. And the number one part of that is we have to have Jimmy on this team.
0: again. Something that I can absolutely vouch for the accuracy of. I coached Little League one summer after I graduated high school and I dealt with parents. And as much as I love those kids, it is something that I would never do again.
1: We also have that opposing figure again in Myra, who is somewhat of a guardian for Jimmy, and she insists that he is not going to play. So within that setting, we get to our first practice
0: straight into a practice montage and this is my kind of practice montage fundamentals drills conditioning nothing fancy running suicides man i hated running suicides more than anything in the whole world
1: jillian michaels says that suicides make (laughs) her want to commit suicide i know this because i have every jillian michaels video ever created But anyway, we've got this very small squad, and we know this because one of our players tells us that there are only 64 boys in this whole school.
0: Again, one of those things I can relate to, my graduating class had 52 people in it.
1: That's men and women. Right. But even within this setup, Coach is all about, you stick to the rules, you run the drills, you don't talk back. And one of our mouthy kids gets kicked out right away because he is not ready to be coached this way.
0: I picture this as you, basically.
1: Here's what I was going to say here. Even though you insist that I have this anti-authoritarian streak, which I'm not going to argue with right now, or maybe I should. Just I was going to say
0: you are. You are arguing against my assertion
1: maybe it's the only child part of me that insists that everyone else should follow the rules and nobody gets special treatment so i like that he gets kicked out so am i trying to have my cake and eat it too It
0: sounds like it yes definitely
1: coach continues to assert that he is the one in charge that includes when the boys come on court those are the older men in town again they get kicked out We've got the one father who brings his son back to apologize and ask to get back on the team. I think maybe at some point in one of my many, many viewings of this, I probably cried at that point.
0: I would say four handkerchief film, probably.
1: Probably easy. Are we talking about a Haley Rolane <laughs> handkerchief film? Would that be 175? For my
0: sister, there aren't enough handkerchiefs in the world. She cried watching Click with Adam Sandler. Did I ever tell you that story? Oh my God. I walked in and caught her watching click and crying. (laughs) She hates me telling that story. So I'm going to tell it as many times as I can.
1: Is it because she realized what she had done with her life?
0: No, she was deeply moved.
1: Well, I am no one to talk because I've got my own rival stories for that. So in the meantime, the team and the coach are getting to know each other, working through these drills working through this strategy, which is about becoming a team, that no one player needs to be a star. I was just about to say here that all of the scenes that aren't in a gym or on a court feel like they're outside, which is more of a feeling than a reality. Because in our very next scene, Norman and Cletus are having dinner in a diner and Shooter, played by Dennis Hopper, comes in. I think Dennis Hopper is absolutely great in this film. The Academy agreed with me because he won a Best Supporting Award. I think it's really fascinating as well to look at another great film from that year, which was Blue Velvet.
0: (laughs) Distinctly different roles. That's definitely for sure. And he did a lot with a little screen time in this one. He was barely there as well. The only person that was there less was probably Jimmy, as far as pivotal characters go. I would say he had, what, four significant scenes in this film altogether?
1: And it still feels like his story is a really pivotal one.
0: Well, it's all redemption. That's all this movie is over and over again. And so as we follow those threads of the various redemptive arcs, that is clearly what we are focusing on, that feeling. Yes, it is about basketball, but the larger overarching theme is these men being pulled back from the brink, being restored in some way or another.
1: And for Shooter, it's very clear that he's in reduced circumstances, most likely due to his alcohol problem. He is still living in those glory days of 33 when he was on the team. He quietly asks Cletus for money, and his son Everett is there and makes him give it
0: back. If there's one thing that feels clumsy about the film, it is the way that these interactions between Everett and Shooter are introduced, both right here and in a more climactic scene later in the hospital, all of a sudden Everett appears out of nowhere, it feels like, just in time to perform some resonant act with his father where the rest of the time it seems to not be addressed. In each of these cases where Everett and Shooter are interacting, it feels a little bit shoehorned into the script for me. Too convenient.
1: You know, now that you say that, I think it is incredibly convenient. I guess I don't focus on it as much because I think about that small town life and what it's like to be estranged from your family members and still live within a mile or on the same property as them.
0: Well, I lived in one of these towns, one of these little one stoplight towns, and I wasn't running into my dad everywhere I went just in time to do some very important exchange with him. So it comes off as a little forced.
1: Okay, fair enough. I did want to point out here that the actor playing Everett, David Nydorf, he was the only member of the basketball cast who was not from Indiana. All of our other players, they were all Hoosiers. We come back to Jimmy at the hoop again, and he has missed class. He still has not spoken at this point. And Coach talks to him about this gift that he has that belongs to him, not to the town, not to Myra, for example, just to him. And we might expect for him to say, come on the team, please. But he says, I don't care if you play or not and leaves, which to me feels like a purely psychological move.
0: Oh, this is good coaching. I'll tell you that for sure. Coaches are crazy and they will pull all kinds of cons, good ones anyway, because a good coach, one of his primary skills is to be able to look inside a person and see exactly what is going to motivate them the most. And this obviously works. Jimmy is thrown off of his rhythm because, again, in an unsubtle fashion, we see him miss the only shot he misses in the entire movie. Jimmy Chitwood don't miss, so he is obviously rocked by this conversation. In retrospect, Jimmy is a super interesting and odd character to me. He's almost a basketball savant, the way he's presented in this film. He's damaged quite clearly. But what is most interesting to me is his true outsider status. He operates completely without regard to the norms and assumptions that govern the behavior of everyone else in the town. He's the linchpin, but that is most keenly felt when he is not there. He's the most absent hero slash catalyst I can think of in a film that I like this much. He only speaks twice in the entire thing.
1: Yes, he literally only has four lines of dialogue.
0: And another aspect of that I like is that his outsider status is reflected in Myra. She is the one woman in town that isn't a cheerleader or a prototypical bake sale mom, it feels like. Even as unflatteringly as she has put across to us, there's something enigmatic and alluring about her as well. But again, it's Hoosiers, so no matter who the outsider is or their motivation for being one, everyone falls in line by the closing credits, and I can see why. It's the same reason that the monster dies at the end of the horror movie. There is a comfort in being the victor, having order restored, and being secure in your place on the right side of this hierarchy.
1: I appreciate Myra's anger here. I like that she is the voice of reason saying that high school does not need to be the high point of your life.
0: How compelling do you find his argument then when he counters with... It's nice to feel like a god, at least even for just a few moments, to be treated this way.
1: I entirely disagree.
0: Okay. For the record, I do too, but what are your reasons for that?
1: Just by its own inevitability, there's no place to go but down. And if you only shoot for the skies when you're 17 years old, you are undercutting your hopes and dreams and aspirations and abilities for the rest of your life. You are essentially aiming so low that you're turning yourself into a joke before your time.
0: There are a lot of Indiana natives that might argue with your take on what it means to be a basketball god, but I see exactly what you mean.
1: And I guess also to me, it becomes such a selfish point of view that you just simply have no foresight of what your actions might do to yourself or to your family or to your community. At the end of the day, it's a great big world out there, and we should all try to go explore
0: it. Yes, but what do you think it is then that drives Myra to make this argument, as she is the one that has come home after having done that? A move that she takes great comfort in, even though there are aspects of this that she doesn't understand why everyone makes such a big deal out of this, why is this so important to everyone... It is clear that she has come back to stay, it feels like. I don't picture that character as viewing this point in her life as a way station. I feel like she's home.
1: I think it's important, number one, that this is being voiced by the main female character Mm. in the film and her circumstances. I don't think we have all of the questions answered for us, and that could be limits in the screenplay or edits made or just a decision to leave some things up to mystery.
0: that lack of complexity that i was talking about early on that's not what people come to this kind of movie for
1: and anger is not always right but i like that it's there you mentioned the idea of these monsters that we might want to slay she's not saying let's end basketball forever let's just be a little bit smarter and aim a little bit higher sometimes but the rest of the town is still in this to my mind very short-sighted view We have the pep rally. This is when we're going to get introduced to the Huskers team.
0: One more handkerchief down the drain right here.
1: I am so with you. It goes south right away because the town is literally crying out for Jimmy. And Coach talks about support who we are. This is your team. They demand and deserve your respect.
0: The first instance where Myra is starting to warm to him a little bit, you think, based on this action?
1: I think so. We see her face. It's an admirable thing to say, and it should be said. And from another person, even in spite of his profession, who is looking at this as more than just simply a basketball game.
0: Well, the season kicks off in earnest right here. And the first thing that's immediately obvious to anyone who watches basketball is what a different style of play it was in 1951 versus what you have today. All sorts of things like no shot clock, etc. no three-point line. And I was wondering for you, for example, this whole four passes before taking a shot thing, how easy is it from an outsider's point of view, when the games start here, to follow the flow of the action, to follow the strategy that's being employed? Is that easy to keep up with? Did you go to high school games when you were a kid?
1: I went to a few, and I've been to a couple of professional games, which are really fun to watch. As much as I dislike sports in general, especially hugely protracted games on television, I find it incredibly exciting to watch live.
0: So it's more fun as spectacle and event than it is to have a regular thing that you sit down and consume.
1: I'm not sure if I think of it that way. And let me explain. I think of television as being the spectacle. There's all of this garbage that goes along with it. But when you watch it live, you can actually appreciate the skill and artistry. Does that answer your question?
0: I think so. On the playing end, I definitely can tell you that it feels that way. I obviously never played at a professional level, but throughout my high school career, there are certain things that this movie puts across that are definitely true. There is a feeling that you get in your stomach just before tip-off when all of the warm-ups are happening on the floor. That has you vibrating with excitement, or at least in my case, not nervousness or anxiety, just pure excitement to join the battle. Other things that are true, some nights you don't have it, like happens to them early on in this. Sometimes, no matter how much work you put in, on a given evening, it does not gel.
1: You know, it's funny that you say that. It's the same feeling in performance. It's the same feeling being backstage when the show's about to start. It's the same feeling when you can spot that the actors are on or off.
0: Do you feel it's a little different, though, in terms of you can put an untrained audience in a theater and they can tell when it's not clicking. If you have an untrained audience at a basketball game, that aren't familiar with some of the nuances of the game, will they be able to pick up on these things? Can you tell, for instance, when you watch a game that someone's got a hot hand and they're going to go to that player again and again, or a certain piece of strategy in the movie, for instance, is working, is not working, before they point it out to you with dialogue?
1: I see what you mean. I was thinking of it as the actual worker backstage, watching the action, not an audience member, and no, I probably can't tell most of those things. In this specific instance, I can tell from the actors' faces and their body language that the strategy in play is breaking down because they're not seeing those initial results right away. But I'm still glad that they tell me that that's what's happening too. Now back to you as the expert essentially in this situation, how well do you think the basketball is filmed here and acted?
0: I think generally they do a very good job both in the coaching and the playing elements, because sitting there on the bench, having seen these things, it rings very true. And generally the players acquit themselves pretty well. They look like they know the game, at least at a high school level. If you're trying to convince me that I'm watching professional athletes, if it's a different level of performance, that might not be the same. We were just talking last night about how Anthony Perkins in Fear Strikes Out looks like he's never thrown a baseball in his life before. So it's not like that. But I do think the most interesting aspect of it and the most accurate aspect of it is watching the coaching stratagems, all these shenanigans that he pulls, the whole play with four because this kid doesn't understand order and discipline yet. I've been there. The whole kick me out of the game so shooter can take over. I've seen stuff. Coaches do crazy things, but it's incredibly accurate in its portrayal of things like how much you have to, and how everyone has to buy into the system to make the system work. It's accurate in the sense that when it's clicking, that's when it gets really fun. It's super fun to be on a team that is firing on all cylinders like that. And you do have beautifully fun moments, even when things aren't going exactly your way, like the whole, what kind of gum is it? It was Dentine. That happens. Those things happen in those situations. And so it generates this love and this bond And anyone who's played for a significant amount of time recognizes all of these things because we've seen our coaches do this stuff. And with these coaching gambits, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. It is always a calculated gamble. It really is an art form, like I mentioned, knowing how far you can push a referee, knowing a player's breaking point, and understanding that sometimes razor-thin difference between what lights a fire in someone and what is demoralizing to them.
1: My recommendation is going to speak directly to that. Okay. I can't actually wait to get there, but I will. But I want to talk here first about the negative side of all of that. The writer, Angelo Pizzo, and the director, David Anspaw were fellow Indiana University grads. They're also native Hoosiers, so I think they lived this as well. And the character of Coach Normandale is based specifically on Bobby Knight.
0: Mm -hmm. That is a long shadow that's cast over Indiana, for sure.
1: And I didn't even have to know basketball to have heard of Bobby Knight. When I was just starting at the very basic level, looking up Bobby Knight, when you get to the selection of his crimes and misdemeanors, essentially, Mm. you have to break them up by decade and by year. Why in the world was this guy so special then?
0: The thing you mentioned earlier about so many people in the town seeming to have this reservoir of anger. The driving force, to me, it is not mysterious because I also have this and I also feel this way and I can tell you it is not so much a mystery as I can tell you losing hurts. I cannot tell you how much I hate to lose. I would rather almost not engage sometimes than lose. So there's nothing that's that enigmatic about it, at least for me. Having been on the losing end of those things often enough and knowing what a terrible feeling that is, if you have someone like him that somehow knows how to motivate and knows how to inspire, and at least until the balance tips later in the career when everything starts to spiral completely out of control, for a long time you are a champion, people will put up with an awful lot when they get that W. But some of these strategy things in the movie that we can tie directly back to Bobby Knight as an inspiration, the whole four passes thing and what defense you're going to play, all that stuff. The benefit to those things, Hackman does directly address, but it's such an offhanded comment that you almost miss it. When they are out on the farm working, he briefly mentions that he's breaking these boys down to build them up again. And so it's not even so much a matter of in-game strategy as the actual point of the exercise is to get them to cow to your authority.
1: And right before that, at the end of this game that does not go well, he gives them the choice. Take the weekend, decide if you want to be on this team, and if you do, this is the law, there is no discussion. And back to this dinner that he's having with the Fleeners, talking about this strategy, we get a bit more insight into Myra, why she is here, Again, it's all about family. And how sometimes family members can let you down through circumstances totally outside their control. Somebody gets sick, you have to come back. Responsibilities are not always fun, but they're not supposed to be. And she still has that wall up. Really, sometimes things just don't work out, but I don't feel like going into more detail for you.
0: Which brings me back to that driving force, that anger. Sometimes the thing that people who haven't played or don't play or don't understand that feeling, the thing that they use to try to diminish or minimize that feeling that you're carrying around having lost, it's only a game. Based on your experience, if I equate it to it's only a play, it's only a movie, does that give you a better touchstone to understand that feeling of loss and how frustrating and infuriating it can be? Is there any sort of equivalence in that?
1: You know, I don't think I even need that equivalence now. And that's because of just changes that we're going through in our own life. And part of it is just getting older and learning to communicate better. We were just talking about this last night, how to handle conflict in general. And for me, a key part of that is learning to not minimize what the other person is feeling because I never want that feeling for myself. A person can be reasonable and have perspective, but that doesn't mean that whatever that feeling was that instigated this issue is any less poignant. Now, I don't know that I'll necessarily be in that same position where I feel like my life, my abilities, my hopes and my dreams are on the line because in those situations they very much are, but I know what it is to create something or go for something and not have it work out.
0: Well, fortunately, I think so far, at least, you haven't found yourself with your back as completely against the wall as Norman Dale. But it's interesting, I think, that these are kids that he is banking on. It's such a risky place to be. It's not entirely up to his efforts. It mirrors Myra's circumstance. She is not here necessarily through her own doing. Granted, through his previous misbehavior, he has put himself here and made it so that he is at the mercy of these children to assist with his redemption. But it's one of the most beautiful things about the film to me, his relationship with these kids, because there is a lot of trust going each direction. He is just as reliant on them for his deliverance. And he could have inherited a bad team. He could have inherited lazy players. It might not have clicked, and what then? His last chance is then spent with nothing to show for it if that happens.
1: That to me comes back to this idea of don't pin your entire rest of your life on high school, whether you're in high school or coaching high school. If you can never rebound from anything, excuse me.
0: That's a technical foul.
1: (laughs) Thank you. If you don't have any sort of flexibility or adaptability, then whatever that circumstance is, you're going to find yourself there with the last chance that you have created yourself. Now, Shooter understands this strategy, likening it to breaking the Colts. And as they're caravanning out to that next game, there's still a lot on the line, even though it's very early days. And things are really going wrong here. Shooter shows up drunk. There are fouls, arguments with the ref. The player Raid throws a punch at another player. And the big key here is that Cletus is obviously in pain. Something's going wrong. If you look at him, it's telegraphed that he's having a heart attack. And he's definitely in distress back at his house post-game. He's got heart problems. Another person with problems, again, that we're going to offer a bit of a lifeline to if only he will learn to accept it. Coach offers Shooter a job as an assistant on the condition of his sobriety and says specifically, you're embarrassing your son. In true, though, sports film fashion, we're going to move on from that a little bit. Things are going to start to turn around here.
0: Before we get too far away from it, how do you feel about how Hackman's character is coming across here, almost seemingly having burned through one assistant, having put so much stress on him that his heart is now in a bad way, only to impress into service a not even quite recovering alcoholic? I see the effort at rehabilitation, but coaches being coaches... How much of it is just in service of getting that win and manipulating someone to achieve your ends?
1: It's true because it doesn't come across as an entirely selfless act or simply to really help Everett. It is in service to ultimately get Everett to concentrate and play to his potential. But it's not an entirely dick move either.
0: (laughs) Because it works out. If it hadn't worked out, then what do we say about it?
1: Absolutely. If we had had a scene where to get him through the last game, you see Norman handing him a bottle, we would be having an entirely different discussion. I wasn't
0: quite thinking that severe. I was just thinking, again, using him up for what his knowledge could do for him and then on to the next thing. I wasn't necessarily thinking precipitating his decline.
1: That's the movie I would be writing in my head, essentially daring people to still like him. And Everett is definitely troubled by it for his own reasons. He thinks that he doesn't deserve that chance. He's going to do something stupid. And it's into this level of questioning his strategies that we come with a major petition to have him removed.
0: This referendum on whether or not Coach gets to stay takes me right back to my hometown. Significantly, the meeting happens at a church, not a civic hall, which speaks volumes about the lack of separation of church and state in these places. And the meeting is even more contentious than when he met the townsfolk at the barbershop, obviously, because now they are on a losing streak. I have been to these meetings. In a town where everyone knows each other, everyone grew up together, there is an incredible pressure to not deviate. There was one particular meeting, and this was in 1987. I was a senior in high school. I don't recall what the fight was about exactly, but the town had gathered to talk about something related to the football team. And at one point, the father of one of my classmates stood up and said, without football, this little old town will dry up and blow away. At which point, 17-year-old me stood up and said to the entire town, if football is all that is keeping this town from drying up and blowing away, then perhaps that's what it deserves. Shouldn't we aspire to more? At which point, Ross Vinson, the local scout leader, stood up and enthusiastically applauded me. He was the only person, kid or adult, that responded in any way. The only one that supported me at all. My folks weren't there, or they would have. They just weren't at that meeting. Everyone else sat there, pin-drop quiet, silently calculating the easiest way to hide-strap my ass to a pine rail, as it is said in this film, and run me out of town. I will never forget him standing up for me. I still see him exactly where he was in the room, the look on his face and what that felt like. And then after that, I just turned and left. Everyone else went on arguing. I'm sure I didn't make a dent in the eventual outcome of things, but it is no joke. That uniformity of class and status and belief and preoccupation with these things is not exaggerated in this film in the slightest.
1: Now I'm really regretting my decision not to use footloose as the recommendation (laughs) to say that I am not surprised is the understatement of the year when coach at this meeting faced with this referendum says, I take responsibility for my mistakes and I apologize for nothing. I picture you saying that.
0: (laughs) Thanks. Actually, I take that as a compliment.
1: Now just before this, Myra has learned an incredibly important piece of information about this previous physical assault of one of his players years ago that earned him a lifetime suspension from college ball.
0: This may be the thing that makes him the most unsympathetic, I would guess. Can you imagine a parent even picturing a coach laying his hands on their kid?
1: Now Myra keeps this to herself at clearly great personal turmoil. And it is Jimmy who saves the day. He comes in and says, I will play only if Coach stays, which earns Coach the right to continue. And we mentioned this at the top of the show. The message is clearly that once Jimmy comes on board, they start winning. They were already on the road to that. So is this more about everyone has some renewed confidence and trust in Coach, in themselves, Is Jimmy the boost that they needed, or are we supposed to think that only Jimmy is the winner on this team?
0: I wouldn't say that we're supposed to think that only Jimmy is the winner, but there is something to be said for being an exceptional player. If you are an average player, work and dedication is only going to take you so far, and the ones that are truly elevated are those who are also blessed with that prodigious natural ability. Some people have it, some people don't. You can Force only so much of that into being. Now, the true champions are the ones who have both. They are the ones who have that ability to start with and then also work just as hard as the player who does not have that advantage. That's what we have in Jimmy. We have both.
1: Having also been on teams, is there something to the idea of having a player who really lifts everybody else up and can also bring other people down?
0: The really great players definitely lift everyone else up. That is one of the tools in their skill set. It's not just that they are exceptional at scoring or playing defense. It is also that they act as sort of a second coach. You can be the kid who should have the ball in his hands and can score 60 points a game. But if all your teammates are doing are standing around watching you do that, then you're going to go only so far with that. It has to be all of these things operating In concert. But it is definitely the case that if Jimmy does not come back, they do not have the ending that they have. He is absolutely irreplaceable.
1: And as I mentioned, the proof is in the pudding. They start winning, things start going their way. Shooter, amidst all of this, is having a really difficult time, though. He cannot stay on the wagon and he has to go dry out, as it were. I wanted to just briefly mention here in doing a bit of research how unbelievably terrible it sounds to have been through that process in the early 50s.
0: I would imagine with the suffering involved, it's terrible no matter when you have to go through it, but were the treatments particularly primitive? Is that what you're saying?
1: Up until 1951, the focus was definitely on cold turkey, Mm. which is an incredibly dangerous and often fatal concept. The drug disulfiram got introduced in 1951, which is the year of our film. It was still very experimental at that stage, and the dosages could often go wrong and kill people. I don't know if you've ever heard of Antabuse. Mm -hmm. It features prominently in Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, for example. That was about literally making you vomit every time you took a drink and it wasn't until the mid 50s and beyond that alcoholism was treated differently by the AMA by hospitals by doctors and the diagnosis changed okay now back to the action okay we're at the regional finals this game has the most aaron copeland style music right. yeah they're down by one there's a granny ball
0: what are you, what do you say what are you talking about? Isn't that about? what
1: that is when you do the underhand to the.
0: Are you talking about Ollie's line? free throws? Yes. Okay. Yes. That is a granny shot.
1: Okay. Sorry.
0: <laughs> he pulled a dipsy doodle. He did the old over under.
1: <laughs> All of those things. But they prevail. And back in Hickory, we have the explanation from Norman as to this incident years ago.
0: In true Hoosiers fashion, it's not the most subtle parallel. It's clearly an issue of him fighting with himself. This kid that he struck, I at least imagine he did because he saw himself in this other person. That is the only reason that he felt comfortable enough to go that far. Had this been a player that was not so much like him, I don't imagine that incident would have ever taken place. I think the metaphor is definitely him fighting himself, being his own worst enemy, like you say.
1: And Shooter speaks that subtext as well, talking about how empty inside he feels. Everyone has this void. It's kind of a town of basket cases, and I like that. And now it's the finals. They made it all the way to the state championship. And I don't know if you knew this, this was a real thing in Indiana high school sports. No matter the size of the school, everyone was eligible to go to this final you didn't have divisions and that lasted for a very long time Mm -hmm. up through the 90s
0: yeah we were class a when i played and we definitely did not play against 6a schools which is sort of how i would characterize this meeting even if we go all the way to the state finals we are only the state champions of class a we would not then go on to play bigger and bigger schools to determine an ultimate champion
1: Now, they're obviously on a much larger stage at this point, and this is the first time when we see, really, black people in general, and specifically players.
0: Yeah, prior to this, we saw one kid in the band, and that was it. And that's one of the criticisms that I hear leveled at this film. One of the few things that people have to say negatively, I think, in general about this film is that there is racism in this finale because it's the underdog small white players against the larger black school but there are a couple of reasons it does not read that way to me. One, it's clearly an integrated school. You see that from both the players and the cheerleaders. So I think it's putting forward a more progressive idea than it's given credit for in terms of that. But two, and most importantly, I can, again, vouch for the accuracy of this experience. This film is not set in the most cosmopolitan place. And in the late 80s in small-town Oklahoma, over three decades later, Things were not much different in terms of the diversity you encountered. We played against other schools our size in the area, the same seven or eight all the time, unless we advanced in the tournaments at the end of the year. And for years, I literally never played against a black player until we finally traveled to, quote unquote, the big city, like the Huskers do. It wasn't an issue of racism in our case. We weren't specifically avoiding playing schools with black players. It was simply a matter of geography. In my hometown, for instance, in my entire grade school through high school career, one black family lived in town. They were a little bit older than me. And over a 20-odd year span, that was it for our hometown. I can imagine similar circumstances for all the towns that are five to eight miles away from us that we played all the time. But when we finally did travel and participate in these tournaments farther up the ladder, when we hit the floor, it was just another team. So that's what this feels like in the movie to me. And again, in the movie's favor, the final game is clean. It's above board, it's hard fought but not dirty, and mutual respect and general good sportsmanship is demonstrated in both directions. The teams that exhibit more unsavory aspects are the all-white teams that they meet in the run-up up to the tournament and then the regular season. And that rings true, too. We had rivals among those smaller schools. And I hated some of those guys. And it got pretty rough some nights, and not because of racism, because we were both white, for instance, the players that I'm talking about, but because they were punks. So I can say without fear of contradiction, in at least my experience, this is accurate. And race wasn't a motivator, at least not for us at our school during that time. And I don't feel that from the Hickory Huskers either. Sometimes it's just the geographical hand that you're dealt. And knowing how things were for me, it doesn't seem that far fetched for 1952 Indiana. You can say I'm missing something or being naive, but I literally lived this experience. And that is how it felt to me as I went through it. I will grant that the pregame prayer is dodgy, invoking Philistines to represent the team with black players on it. But the rest of it, no, it doesn't feel that way to me. And that's based solely on my personal experience.
1: And I also don't think it's fair to expect the film to represent everything that was happening in the period. But I do have some interesting further reading I'm going to give in The Post, specifically about the Crispus Attucks team and their heartbreak of a 1952 season.
0: They're actually the team that won the Indiana State Championship for two years in a row after the team that this team is based on, that Hoosiers is based on.
1: And it really helpfully provides a lot of the gaps that the film might not show. And that's about more institutional racism, integration, and segregation. So I hope everybody will check that out. It's really interesting reading. Back to us, though, as you mentioned, I love that this team is not the villain either. We're still solely reliant on our own team, on our own abilities.
0: I have one thing that I take issue with right there. Go for it. Religion is the thing that is much harder for me to get by in this instance than any issue of race or class that is dealt with. It is ever-present, and there's the intimation that they are favored by divine intervention more than once. And so it's not just their abilities. It's not just the team struggling. It is the team struggling with God on our side. It's a bit much for me. But I do like Hackman's character's approach to it. He can function as my agnostic surrogate well enough in this case. For instance, he doesn't answer when directly grilled about whether or not he possesses high Christian moral character and how that translates to whether he plays Zone or Man-to-Man. But when it comes to prayer, he gives his players room enough to do their thing, respects who they are, rewards their efforts with his consideration. But ultimately, his concerns are pragmatic, not supernatural.
1: I definitely think he steps in with a lighter hand at every opportunity when this is shown. He's the person who can make light of it, can make a joke of it, and can use it for his own purposes as well. And I guess it's more of a comment on me and my total distance from any of that. When I hear the David and Goliath story, I don't think of it as religion anymore, but as a scrappy underdog story straight out of central casting. The thing that bothers me the most in the film is the ending, at least within the game. Even though I said that I saw this at a time when I didn't necessarily know how this was going to turn out, I really did think that... For that moment, Jimmy was going to fake out and somebody else was going to take the winning shot. And it bothers me that Jimmy does it.
0: Here's where playing experience makes the difference, I think. It rings true. There's an ebb and flow during the course of a game and over the course of a season. And if you are a good coach, you know when to listen to your team. And when Jimmy says, I'll make it. When that player is asserting himself, not in any rebellious way, You have to let it pay off for what you've been teaching this whole time. He's asserting himself in the proper framework, no showboating, but strictly confidence in the preparation and the work that's been put in. But those moments happen too. And it's the most successful coaches and teams that know when to pay attention to them.
1: Okay, coach, I'll take your word for it. (laughs) Just put me in the game.
0: And speaking of great true moments, that final speech he gives, that... I love you guys when when I'm starting to choke up right here thinking about it. It is on the money. It's one of the best inspirational speeches you will see in any sports film. And it is very definitely the feeling after you have gone through a season of ups and downs together. You've put in so much time. These are your best friends in the world. And you can really tell when you are a part of something special. And this is across the board. It's like music, art, anything else. You know when things are clicking. You know When whatever is happening around you, there is a magic to it. Because so often in life, it doesn't go that way. So often it's work a day, mundane experience. So to seize on this opportunity and acknowledge it, it would be criminal not to do that at this point.
1: It was choking me up watching you choke up. (laughs) Now that bit of disappointment that I feel is completely gone with the very end. This is actually my favorite part. We're back in the cornfields, we're back in the gym, there's a young boy playing, long after that crowd has cheered, long after all of those people are gone, to me it says something that we don't end on triumph and personal achievement, that we're seeing a photograph of this team, we see the shadows in the ephemera, we see only the memory itself However unforgettable it is to some people, it's still transitory and fleeting. Maybe it's because we've been watching Bergman lately. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. (laughs) But it feels very solemn and a bit sad to me in a way that I appreciate.
0: The melancholy is undercut by the fact that they are enshrined forever. It seems indelible, the memory at least. So it plays just right, that bittersweetness of the championship season that will begin to fade over time. Ultimately, the movie is a fantasy, clearly. When we talk about these criticisms that people level at it, it's valid to discuss those things, but it's not what it's trying to do. And it is one of the most effective fantasies of its kind ever made. If, as sports are often portrayed, this is a microcosm of the world at large, then the world is a pretty great and uncomplicated place for an hour and a half. We know in our hearts that that's not true, but for a brief shining moment, Hoosiers gives us a break from all of that. And especially for those of us that played the game at any level, it is extra special. Well, I think you stated at the outset this time why you chose the film instead of saving it for the end. Was there anything else you wanted or you just wanted to get straight to your recommendation?
1: Let's get to the recommendations. Okay. You want me to go first? Well, as usual, I'm breaking all the rules. Okay. (laughs) Because I have chosen an episode of the ESPN series, 30 for 30.
0: Ah, you sneak. Are you doing the NC State one?
1: No, I thought about it. Oh, I
0: love that one. You want to talk about team chemistry and how good it feels to play on a team like this? That one is so great. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead.
1: That was definitely in the contention, but I chose one that i don't think you've actually gotten to yet i cried probably through the whole thing including when the coach is just talking about his strategy because i think you can feel it i know i can when someone believes in something i chose the episode guru of go from 2010 directed by bill kouturi this is all about the career of coach paul westhead and i'm quoting from this because These words are not my own, and I can't really internalize them. He became famous because of his system of the fast break. He was very controversial, worn out his welcome at the NBA, and really found his calling at the college level. The first thing that made me choose this was all about watching those drills in the film and seeing this pay off in his system with his players at Loyola Marymount. It was all about endurance, the idea that we are never going to be the players who will flag at any point in the game. What continues to make this rise above so many other titles, stories, sports films, sports episodes, games themselves, are the players themselves, the camaraderie that they had, the brotherhood that they had, and specifically the incredible tragedy of Hank Gathers. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen this one yet, and I don't know if I could take it, because I remember when all that happened, and it still hurts to think about just sitting here.
1: I'm covered in goosebumps from head to toe, remembering it. We actually see, because it was filmed, Hank Gathers collapse on court, and it is one of the most terrible things I have ever seen on film. I'm having a little bit of a difficult time right now. I love the 30 for 30 series, again coming from a non-sports fan. They're great stories, well told. And the emotional impact of this one towers above many of the other truly excellent titles, including the one that you had mentioned. Now, how about your recommendation?
0: Well, what's that you say? You want your basketball without the rose-colored prism of nostalgia? You want your complicated issues of race, class, and economics put back in, well, I have the film for you, and that is Hoop Dreams from 1994, directed by Steve James.
1: Truly excellent choice.
0: This is a landmark documentary that follows the trajectories of two young African-American players as they follow their dream to play big-time basketball, and this really is a true odyssey. With all the attendant ups and downs that you have in a story like this, contrary to Hoosiers, the greatest struggles here take place off the court. As these young men and their families navigate the hardships that come with chasing this brass ring, the stakes really are as big as it gets. Quite literally, the American dream, striving for an entirely new way of life when the odds are stacked against you. If Hoosiers chokes you up three times, this will get you five times everything is on the line, and it's all on these kids' shoulders. It started as an intended 30-minute short film, and eight years later, they ended up with this epic. The three-hour running time still feels like 30 minutes to me, though. It is absolutely engrossing.
1: You're kidding me. It's that long? hmm
0: 171 minutes.
1: I had no idea.
0: It's not just my opinion. You look on list after list, and this shows up as one of the greatest documentaries of all time. I can't recommend it highly enough.
1: And on other just purely sports films lists, for example, Rolling Stone has it as number one as well. So as usual, that's two great recommendations to cry your damn eyes out (laughs) to. That's 30 for 30, Guru of Go, and Hoop Dreams.
0: And that brings us to the end of episode 71. Before we get to any other business today, first and foremost I would like to say a special thanks to Travis Trudell and Jason Beamish for becoming our newest Patreon supporters. We appreciate it so much guys, thank you very much. If you have yet to take a look at our Patreon, you can find all of the perks and info and everything at patreon.com magiclantern magic lantern. We are one person away from reaching our latest goal, so if you would like to be that special person that helps us reach that, we can't tell you how grateful we would be. Aside from that, if you would just like to get in touch with us, you could reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I would like to just take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, the fine gentleman at FUDS on Film, RJ Tugas, Maritza Gulin Fred Osuna, Ben Modell, Brian Sauer, Patrick Kiever, Matteo Boscarol, Michael Cannon, Audie Christianos, Christopher Owen, and a special thanks to director Bill Morrison, who actually shared our episode about his film, Dawson City, Frozen Time, on his own social media. We appreciate that very much. I also wanted to say a special thanks to Doug McCambridge over at Good Times Great Movies who invited us to sit in and do a special mini episode for their show about one of our 80s favorites, Body Heat.
1: We had great fun doing that. Thanks, Doug and Jamie.
0: And one last quick mention and thanks to Tim and Leon at the podcast. Yaga day. They recently covered one of our favorite subjects, Alexander Pierce, which we talked about his story when we did our Van Diemen's Land episode, and they were gracious enough to give a shout out for us in that episode, so thanks guys, we appreciate that. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, just about any podcatcher you use, you can find us. I do want to say thanks to the nice anonymous person that gave us a five-star rating this week on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to do the same, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com.
1: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.